Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and uh, excited about today because we're going to talk a lot about roads, actually. They, uh, they carry us places, they, uh, they deliver us things, and we have a man here who is a big part of that. And, and you know what? Um, I want to dive right into the story first, and then we'll get back into the history. But we're so lucky to have uh, Mike Jacobs, Emil Anderson Construction, Chairman of the Board. Welcome to the big show. Thank you, Rick. Pleased to be here. So, Mike, tell me a bit about the moment when you learned about this massive washout that had taken out roads, and it was really a, a, a momentous event, and you kind of got a, a, a very close insight into how momentous it was with how many roads were taken out, and this is going back last year. Yeah, it's uh, November 14th in 2021. We had what the uh, weather people are now calling an atmospheric river. And we've had atmospheric rivers for decades and decades. They used to be called the Pineapple Express. And the reason for that is the storm starts in Hawaii, picks up a lot of moisture and swings uh, northeast and comes crashing into British Columbia. And another interesting fact, I grew up in Hope. So I've seen the Coquihalla run wild for many, many times over, over the decades. But this time, the atmospheric river was unique in that um, Hope always gets a lot of rainfall because the storm comes charging up the Fraser Valley, gets squeezed by the mountains at Hope, and then just dumps its load as it tries to rise up over the mountains. This time, the atmospheric river was 5,000 feet deep. So what normally happens is all the rain gets dropped at Hope and and thins out as it gets up into the Coquihalla Highway and the Hope Princeton. This time, because the storm was at such high um, altitudes and elevations, the same amount of rain fell on the Coquihalla summit as fell in Hope. So, and that was uh, 340 millimeters in a 24-hour period. So for old people, that's over a foot of rain in 24 hours. And that's unheard of, particularly at the top of the Coquihalla, because you'll know that the bridge up there is called Dry Gulch Bridge. And it's called Dry Gulch because usually that gulch is dry. Uh, so you had a foot of rain at the top of the Coquihalla and a foot of rain all the way down past Hope into Abbotsford. And it all came in 24 hours. And it basically had nowhere to go except into the riverbeds. And the damage was uh, extensive and everywhere. Did, did you have an idea of how much destruction initially, or was it, you know, because obviously reporting was a bit dodgy at that point because a lot of people didn't know, but did you kind of find out how big this event was? You know, how soon did you know the extent? Our crews were on site in anticipation of something happening. We didn't expect it to be to the magnitude that it was, but we knew from all of the weather forecasts and you know, as part of our road maintenance operations, we actually pay private meteorologists for uh, distinct and minute area forecasts. So we have about 50 different forecasts that we get regularly when a storm is coming in. So we knew there was going to be a lot of rain. We knew there would be some damage or some uh, issues on the highway. So we were there and one of the biggest floods was right at Othello, which is only five minutes from our, our base in Hope, BC. 
So when we could see that um, it was taking out roads on both sides of the river there, we knew this was major. And you know, very soon the uh, Jessica Bridge, which is about uh, 15 kilometers east of Hope, um, it was being washed out. And, uh, and then the uh, two bridges, Bottle Top and can't recall the other name up top, uh, you know, they were being washed out. So all of a sudden the Coquihalla Highway was completely cut off to traffic in three spots. At Othello, two of the lanes, the two uh, westbound lanes were completely washed out and the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was in the median, and it was a wide median, the median was about 25 meters wide, the pipe was actually washed out and was bobbing in the river. Uh, it didn't break. It pipeline, didn't break. No, yeah. it did not break. And, and that's not the first time I've seen a pipeline washed out by the Coquihalla River. And it just sat there just snaking along like a big snake. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, the uh, pipeline people shut off all the flows in it, but uh, there were no spills or no breaks. So, uh, you know, very, very well constructed, uh, you know, decades and decades ago. And, and a plug for the new pipeline, it will be... Uh, much better constructed because of technology these days and x-rays of welds and everything. So uh, those people who are worried about uh, pipeline issues in the future, they're pretty minimal. Yeah. Um, and, and let's talk, and again, I, I've said this before, we, we take some pot shots at government on this program a lot, but the, the government really responded swiftly when it found out the devastation because obviously we are a hub um, we weren't getting supplies through like, you know, this is a major thoroughfare, an arterial road between a major center, a port city and, and ourselves. And they seem to just show up, you know, and, and write checks very quickly. Uh, definitely. The government realized how severe the situation was because we we're talking about three bridges on the Coquihalla Highway wiped out. The Fraser Canyon Road just north of Boston Bar wiped out at a creek. Uh, completely disconnected, two other washouts farther up close to Lytton, and the Hope Princeton Highway also had washouts so that it was closed. So, oh, And there was a slide on the Duffy Lake Road, Highway 99 between Pemberton and Lillooet. So there was no physical way for road traffic to get from the lower mainland to anywhere else in BC. If you really had to drive, you had to go down through Seattle along I-90, and then come back up into the uh, South Okanagan or the Kootenays. That was the only road travel possible for about three weeks. So unheard of. Uh, as you will recall, we had shortages in some goods that were arriving in the Okanagan. Our goods couldn't go to market. Um, you know, the economic uh, devast potential devastation was huge. And I give the government credit for recognizing just how important that infrastructure was. And they more or less turned to the two uh, road maintenance contractors that uh, looked after that area, one being our company, Emil Anderson Maintenance, Fraser Valley Division, and YRB, Yellowhead Road and Bridge, who looked after the areas uh, surrounding Merritt. And we were told basically, do what you have to do find a way to get these roads open as quick as you can. You know, the initial reports were it would take months, perhaps a year to uh, get everything fixed. But um, we were fortunate, uh, going back to the pipeline again, in that uh, the pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, 
had a huge work complement up there and a huge fleet of equipment. Uh, and they were actively working until the uh, storm hit. And all of a sudden, they were cut off from being able to proceed with work because they couldn't get their workers from Hope or Merritt to the sites. But uh, all this equipment that was up there, the province gave uh, the two maintenance contractors permission to hire whatever they could hire. And that's part of why we were able to put the... Um, particularly the Coquihalla, back to uh, work again so quickly. So there were a lot of very skilled operators and other construction workers on the pipeline who, instead of being laid off because they couldn't get to work, went to work on 12-hour shifts, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get the highway open. So 300 workers, uh, 200 pieces of heavy equipment, all kinds of ancillary equipment, and seven days a week, 24-7. It, uh, it was really a, a, a momentous effort. But when something like this happens, it's amazing how everybody steps up. Um, we had crews who came out of the Okanagan. We pulled them off of projects here to go onto our equipment in the uh, flood areas. And you know, we tried to rotate them because nobody wants to be f away from home and, and you don't want to wear people out. When you're going 12 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, um, it starts to tire you out after a while. But anybody who did a shift down there for a couple weeks, as soon as they got back here, it was like, I'm ready to go back. <laughs> you know, Because this is an experience like no other that you were able to utilize those machines, your skill to 100%. There are no, there's no red tape, there's no bureaucracy, there's no, well, you know, that, that little rock looks a little dirty, you gotta pull that out and wash it. You know, this, everything was devastated by the river. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, all, we followed all best practices, but we didn't have, you know, monitors, you know, looking at every rock that went into the river. Uh, we were able to actually put clean, equipment into the river because it was the only way to rechannelize the Coquihalla. Like at the section near Othello, the river was say nominally 50 meters wide from bank to bank and it wandered as, as a, you know, a uh, seasonal river does. When the flooding happened on November 14th, November 15th, the river went from 50 meters wide to over 200 meters wide taking out the two westbound lanes of the Coquihalla Highway, which were very well built and, and built to a high standard, and it took out Othello Road, which is the road that uh, comes up from Hope, Cockawa Lake area and, and connects to the Coquihalla Highway, but also goes to the Othello Tunnels, which is a real tourist attraction of the old Kettle Valley Railway. So an important you know, back road into Hope and to the uh, uh, tourism site. So both roads are washed out on either side of a river that used to be 40 meters away from the roads. So you have this basically gravel and water mess that's 200 meters wide. And the river is now just, its main channel is right beside the Coquihalla River where it's washed out two lanes with a pipeline floating in it and no road on the other side. So um, I actually have a little video on my phone. If this was video, I could show it, but uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. So 
after getting permission and following best practices, we ended up with um, uh, two or three large bulldozers in the middle of the river and two of the big excavators have to break down into three pieces to, to, to haul anywhere. And for a week, those five pieces of equipment basically rechannelized the river to get it back into kind of where it was and then take the water away from where the roads were on both sides to um, you know, allow the highway to be rebuilt. And so it was November 14th, 15th Yes, was, was the, the date. Yeah. And then the road reopened, like, you know, single, single lane. But yeah. when, when did it reopen? Uh, I think it officially reopened December 20th. Yeah. Uh, through our work, I was over it twice. And it was passable, single lane, about um, after two weeks. And then it was a matter of getting it up to an acceptable standard to have public travel uh, go on it. And so it was opened basically for transport trucks only before Christmas because uh, we really needed to get those uh, supply chains rolling again and, and get goods to and from the Okanagan and you know to the rest of Canada because Vancouver is the biggest port in the country and all those goods that arrive from Asia and uh, other uh, places by ship come off of, uh, the containers come off and either go on trains or go on trucks and head to Calgary, Edmonton, and, and farther east. And, you know, a few of those were diverted to, to go through the states for stuff that was really urgent, I'm sure, and perishable goods. But, um, you know, it really, I think, showed the public and the government the real importance of good infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been, certainly been, you know, I would say preaching that message to them that um, we need those investments and we need to uh, continue to make them because, you know, every hour wasted with goods on a truck or on a train um, is economic loss to our country. And we need those dollars for health care and education. So, Mike, did you cause that weather storm then? Is that what you did? You were trying to send a message? Was that what you were doing? Uh, no, I'd like to take credit for it, but I don't have quite that pull with the big guy upstairs. <laughs> but um, one of the things in our business is, no, we don't cause the disasters, but we're there to uh, mitigate them as quickly and best we can. So but we have a long company history of dealing with floods and and snow slides and, and, and disasters like that. So I guess you don't know how important the infrastructure is until it's gone. I think that's the big message. And absolutely. And you know, and part of the message even is for, you know, congestion on 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 roads and highways and you know, when this happened I didn't mention, but all of the um, uh, with the Fraser Canyon uh, damage, the trains were stopped. There were no trains that could go from Vancouver to Calgary. So that just, because we, you know, I, I was walking through grocery stores and there was shelves empty and that kind of thing. And it just, it brought it home how important that that infrastructure is and, and for a variety of goods, as you mentioned. Now, the other thing was, as you mentioned off the top, there was a timeline of a year. Because, I mean, when we saw the pictures from the news uh, channels, I mean, we're talking when, when bridges are washed out and when, when roads are basically gone, you know, people sat there and went, we won't, 
get to the coast again or, or go through Seattle, which is another probably another four hours or five hours, oh, at I would least. imagine. Um, but it seemed like that was just going to be a, a one-year hurt that was going to hit our region for a long time. And then to turn it around in that quick a time, I mean, the pipelines was seemingly a, a big portion of that where you have specialized welders and people that are ready to roll on site. I mean, that certainly uh, added to the, I guess, solution. Uh, it, it certainly did. But, uh, you know, a plug for the road building and construction industry in British Columbia is that we were presented with a problem and we collectively, working with government, came up with solutions. So a couple of the bridges were reopened by basically taking the big lock blocks that you see as retaining walls all around and building a new abutment. We knew it was temporary for a year or two, but it was something that could be done very quickly, could be quickly engineered. So, you know, the government engaged the, the right engineers, people who had the expertise, people who could make the quick decisions, and contractors who knew how to build it, build it right, build it quickly and efficiently, and, and that's what was done. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, second guessing or, oh, we need to review this, we need to do that. It was basically conservatively design it, do what needs to be done to make sure it's going to last for a few years, um, place extra riprap to protect bridge abutments and things like that. And, and there were, you know, a lot of, um, you know, quick decisions that had to be made. I was actually down there one day and it was very clear that there there was a second storm about a week later that did wash out mm -hmm. some of the work that was done, but it wasn't nearly as severe as the first storm. But, you know, the river, the river tries to, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a fire. It wants fuel and its fuel is to eat into a bank. It wants to find a, a shorter distance to get to the ocean, mm -hmm. to put it in kind of layman's terms. So as it comes around a corner, there's a lot of energy in the others, uh, on the far side of the corner. The river then hits the bank, then it kicks across. Well, once it's kicked across, now it wants to go straight that way. So it starts gouging into the other side. So there was the um, uh, other bridge, uh, not Ladner Creek, but... Um, right near where the Othello Road joins in. I'm blanking on the name of the bridge, but it, it was trying to erode behind uh, the, the pier. And basically decisions had to be made instantaneously, uh, get the trucks, load them up with riprap. For those who don't know, riprap is the big rock that you see uh, lining rivers and lakes to protect against storms and flooding. So uh, with a large excavator to help place the riprap, um, you know, 100 loads of riprap were hauled, dumped into the river to provide a deflection of the force of the water so that it couldn't erode in behind uh, uh, this one bridge. So, uh, you know, again, quick action. There wasn't time for, you know, the an engineer to come out and say, yeah, we should do this or we shouldn't do this. There wasn't time for the government people, the Ministry of Transportation people to come out and say, yeah, this is what's right. It was basically, no, start now, get it done, <laughs> you know, trust the experts. And in, trust the in process. The trust exactly, the process. trust the process. So, um, so 
out of your years at the helm, is this really one of the, the big events in Emil Anderson's history? Because, you know, you were, you were called upon, you answered the call, and, and there's been probably a lot of events, but this one just seems to rise up as far as a, a big event that you were able to really show what your resources could do. Uh, it, it, it definitely is at the top of the list or tied at the top of the list because you um, will remember the Hope Slide that came down in 1966 and closed off the Hope Princeton Highway back when the Hope Princeton Highway was, was, the, main was the main thoroughfare to get to the Okanagan. There was the Fraser Canyon Highway to get to Kamloops. And, you know, that was far more massive. It was the side of a mountain fell down. And, and EAC was one of the first contractors on site, again, because of our location base in Hope. So, um, you know, that's back in 1966. And neither you and I will quite remember that because we're <laughs> not quite that old. But, uh, you know, again, that was a momentous thing for us. But um, this was certainly much more in the public. You know, BC had, you know, doubled or tripled in size, you know, far more goods. The Port of Vancouver was now huge. It, it was a much more impactful event uh, last year than, um, you know, 1966. The, the saving grace of this event is nobody was killed in the 2021 event and unfortunately I believe three people died in the in the hope slide and and a couple still remain uh, buried underneath that mountain that fell down so uh, we're going to be back in, in a bit with uh, more Mike Jacobs chairman of the board of Emil Anderson construction uh, fascinating to chat with but we got to uh, pay the pay the people to pay our bills uh, do you have print needs for your business the d6 print studio on Lucky Road has large format printers to service your every need and uh, they do it very well. So D6 Print Studio on Lecky. Uh, there's an auction, big one, right now at clonernow.com. Cool stuff, good deals, kind of an auction super center without the smell. More in a minute with uh, Mike Jacobs. Okay, we're back with more. And, and we kind of jumped ahead there, Mike, because I really wanted to dive into that great story because it, it's, uh, it, it's a wonderful story about achievement and you know, I, I think we should change the logo on Emil Anderson. I know he would roll over in his grave, but, you know, white horses or something, because that, that's truly what it felt like, you know, in it's such a short amount of time. So uh, let's talk a bit about the history, because because your company is rooted in history, and you are a great-grandson of, of one of the, of the founder. So let's talk a bit about how it came into being, because there's a good story there of, of how it came into being. Uh, absolutely, Rick. Uh, we're very proud that we are now a fourth-generation-run family business. So our founder, Emil Anderson, came over from Sweden in the late 1800s, arrived first into Minnesota, and then migrated to what's now Thunder Bay, Ontario. And he would have been known as an entrepreneur before the word was ever invented. Uh, he uh, had a hotel in the Fort William neighborhood of Thunder Bay. Unfortunately, the hotel burned down. He didn't have any insurance, so he had to start over. He uh, got into a woodlot business, basically, you know, growing trees. He was a bit of a logger. Uh, then he got into construction. And uh, we trace our roots to 1938 when he uh, founded Emil Anderson Construction and started doing highway projects around Northern Ontario based out of 
what's now Thunder Bay. In 1941, World War II was on. Uh, the North America was concerned about the Japanese, and the Army Corps of Engineers from the U.S. decided they needed a land road to Alaska because there was no road to Alaska. So they commandeered pretty much every construction company in Western Canada, which included Emil Anderson. So in 1941, Emil and his son Carl took their fleet of equipment and crews and did uh, a section of the Alaska Highway along with hundreds of other contractors. And there was a momentous occasion. That road was a bit of, goat, of a goat trail, but it was open in one season. So in one season, under direction of the Army Corps of Engineers, a road was built from Dawson Creek to Alaska. And an interesting note, everybody thought, well, that was so we could get troops to Alaska in case the Japanese uh, tried to invade that way. However, the real reason was so that they could haul goods to Alaska and fly them into Russia because Russia was being uh, blitzkrieged by the Germans and being frozen out. So it was as much to keep the Russian army holding back the Germans in Russia as it was to be prepared for the Japanese. And, you know, so, there, you know, there's some company history. So after that, um, Emil and Carl went back to Thunder Bay area, did a few projects, uh, but they'd got a taste for the West. And in 1945, the two of them came out to B.C., put in a tender or a price to build the western half of the Hope Princeton Highway. And projects as they are today are awarded on low price, and they'd submitted the lowest price and moved the majority of the operation from Thunder Bay to Hope, B.C. And over four years did a $5.4 million contract to build the Hope-Princeton Highway from Hope to right near where the Manning Park Lodge is right now. And Jeez, that's a huge project. It was an absolutely huge project, and these were, at that stage, you know, two father-son small-time contractors who came out, and you know, fortunately, they had dealt with the rocky Canadian Shield around Thunder Bay and Nipawin and places like that in northern Ontario. So, other than the hills being a little steeper, they weren't scared of the rock and other things, and. They completed the project in four years as per the contract, and, and uh, our company head office was set up in Hope, B.C. to uh, carry us through the uh, 1950s when the Fraser Canyon Highway was improved with tunnels. We built four of the uh, six tunnels in the Fraser Canyon, uh, did other projects all around the province, uh, both for uh, it was called the Department of Highways at the time. Uh, a number of the dam projects were happening. Revelstoke, uh, we didn't work on the dam, but we rerouted the highway because the highway that went up to where uh, now the Mica Dam is was all being flooded uh, with the Revelstoke Dam. And we did this, sections of the Rogers Pass, sections of the, the Samuel Creston Highway. There's... Um, uh, sections of the previous Vancouver Island Highway. So so that business carried on through the 50s, the 60s. And uh, my father, who was um, uh, raised in Summerland, so I have some Okanagan roots. My grandparents lived in Summerland for, for 60 years. 
Um, he um, decided he wanted to be an engineer and uh, picked fruit in the summers to make enough money to go to engineering school and went to UBC, uh, got his engineering degree, uh, had some family roots back in Alberta. So he went and worked for one season with the Department of Highways in Alberta. He got laid off for the winter, which typically happened back then. So he was looking for another job and he saw this posting uh, for this company out of Hope, BC called Emil Anderson Construction. And so he talked to my grandfather and my grandfather said, well, I always thought it was better for you to work for a private company than for the government, so go give it a shot. So he uh, drove down to Hope and um, met Emil Anderson and uh, my father was about six feet tall. Emil was, was not that tall, but he was, he, he was a person that had a great presence. I never had a chance to meet him, but I know about the uh, history. And he basically looked at my father and said, I like tall engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when my father started uh, with the company in 1954. And he worked on uh, the initial, now called the Sea to Sky Highway, the initial... Um, Highway to Squamish from Horseshoe Bay, worked on um, one of the dam projects between uh, Squamish and Whistler, uh, did some uh, road works on Vancouver Island, and, uh, and while all that was happening, uh, my mother, who was a niece of, or a, a granddaughter of Emil Anderson, a niece of Carl Anderson, um, was a nurse trained in Thunder Bay and she came out to uh, head up the Hope Hospital and young engineer met young nurse and uh, uh, they married in 1961 and and then my dad got sent to a tunnel project in Oregon and I showed up in 1962 in Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> so uh, just for a second, I mean that's yeah. rich history. I mean you, all over the province and everything else. Tell me about tunnels though because whenever... I go through a tunnel on the way to uh, Vancouver. I am always struck by, you know, there's blasting. I would I would imagine, but how much is too much? Because I mean, you can you can blast. There, there's got to be some sort of algorithm for, okay, we need to make this space. We need to make it so big. Then we need to build supports. But I mean, there's got to be so much engineering into a tunnel. Just oh, because. oh, yeah, ab- absolutely, Rick. Uh, you're, you're correct that most tunnels, uh, particularly in the older days, were uh, drilled and blasted. So you had a very intricate pattern of holes that would go around the, call it the curvature and the sides of the tunnel. And then you um, need to put certain um, uh, relief holes and blast holes in um, you know what would be the the airspace in the tunnel so um, yeah there's an elaborate blast pattern where you you don't want all of the rock to shoot back at you you kind of want it to collapse in on its own so you trigger a blast so that the middle goes first open up so that all the rock can move towards the middle away from the edges so you want the force on the edges to push everything down into the side of the tunnel so that it doesn't force energy back to the tunnel walls and weaken them. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, engineering and science into uh, blasting a tunnel. 
the last major one we did was the Wolverine Tunnel for the Tumbler Ridge coal mines back in the, in the 80s. Uh, since then, we haven't built any new tunnels, but we've done a lot of remedial and maintenance work for the railways, for both CP and for CN. And we widened one of the tunnels at the Revelstoke Dam because they wanted to bring in a new generator that was just slightly bigger than the access <laughs> tunnel. So uh, nothing like going in with a laser measurement and shaving off you know, little protrusions in a tunnel. But uh, again, we accomplished that, and Hydro, BC Hydro, got their generator in, and, you know, the Revelstoke Dam is now more efficient because of it. it you must have been able to see different parts of BC that no one's ever seen before, just uh, based on your work. Oh, oh, certainly, yeah. So I started uh, working uh, for the company uh, in the summer of 1982 in my university years and my first project was as a surveyor's assistant at what was to become the Bull Moose Mine. So I was there before there was a mine site. It, uh, we, were, we were doing the earthworks to open up for the mine site. So yeah, I'm pretty certain there's places where um, the um, uh, conveyor system to bring the coal down from the top seam we had to walk that whole line, um, put the stakes out for clearing and grubbing of the trees, and I, I doubt anybody had walked there before uh, before we had uh, come down. That's an, that's yeah. amazing stuff because I mean BC is such a diverse you know topography, yep. and, and having seen some of those areas would be amazing. So now Emil Anderson is obviously diversified. It's got a lot of different aspects to it. Do you want to just talk about some of the different things you've gotten into? Certainly. So we were primarily a road builder and heavy construction company. So working on dams, working on um, you know other uh, major uh, infrastructure projects that weren't roads until uh, the late 1980s. In uh, 19... Um, 82, we were the utility uh, and road building contractor for day on developments on a little mountain in Kelowna called Dilworth Mountain. And those of you who remember your history, in 1982, interest rates spiked. We were into a recession, and day on developments was highly levered. Uh, not just here, they were doing office towers in Texas, they were doing uh, buildings all over, and unfortunately, they couldn't service their debt and basically went bankrupt overnight. So, the Dilworth Mountain project went bankrupt. Well, we were owed $250,000 for the work that we'd done for Day On. Uh, fortunately, we were within our lien period, so we were able to lien the project. And uh, to make a long story short, the bank who was the receiver didn't want to pay any cash. Uh, one of the former day-on project managers was working with the receiver, so he suggested to us that the bank would um, trade us lots for the debt that they owed us. So we ended up taking a deal where the average price of a lot was around 50000 in the uh, mid-1980s. and. So we got uh, 10 lots uh, for our $250,000 debt. So we got lots at 25,000. It took us five years to sell them all, but we sold them all for about 50,000. 
So it seemed like a good deal. So while all that was going on, a local realtor tried to put a joint venture together with the bank and ourselves saying, well, we could build all the infrastructure and then we'd sell the lots and, and split the proceeds. The bank in Kelowna thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. Bank in Vancouver thought, uh, yeah, that could work. And then it got to Toronto. No thanks, we're not in the development business, just sell the mountain to whoever will buy it. So the price uh, of the mountain kept going down and then the realtor said, well, maybe you guys should just buy it. And fortunately for me, um, our company took the plunge in 1987 in September and bought Dilworth Mountain. Bought the re remainder of the mountain with a land use contract to build over a thousand home sites. Jeez. Yeah. And, and John Thompson, uh, dearly departed, uh, John Thompson tells a story about how that bank in Toronto had, you know, done some analysis, not very deep on how big the mountain was or didn't really know the whole capacity and just kind of sold it off at a probably a lower rate than most people would imagine. Uh, absolutely. Um, I like to say we're into it for 35 years now. We should have the mortgage paid off in a couple more <laughs> No, we, uh, in hindsight, uh, it was a bargain basement deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, the number's been out publicly, so uh, we purchased it for $2.6 million. A mountain. A mountain. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's great, though, that that stuff happens, because obviously it's, it's built a legacy, and it's, it's created a lot of wonderful homes and yeah. all, all sorts of things. Yeah. So, so we've got uh, home building, we've got infrastructure, road construction, maintenance, what else? We, um, around that same time, the BC government decided to privatize road maintenance. Before that, all of the highway maintenance was done by government crews. So in uh, 1988, we also diversified into the road maintenance business and actually were the first uh, private contractor to do the South Okanagan area. We um, uh, formed a company called Mid-Valley Highway Maintenance, and we um, did that um, service to the government for three years. Uh, it was a test for the first three years. The contract came up for retender. Unfortunately for us, we were underbid by uh, another company, and we had just a three-year venture into road maintenance. Uh, we uh, decided in 1996 to try and get back into the business. We tried to get the South Okanagan area, but we weren't successful. But we were successful in getting the Upper Fraser Valley area, which goes from Alder Grove uh, up to uh, Sunday Summit on the Hope Princeton Highway, which is about 25 kilometers west of Princeton. So it covers most of the Hope Princeton Highway, goes up the uh, Coquihalla Highway to Portia, which is about five kilometers below the, the Great Bear Snowshed, and it does the Fraser Canyon Highway uh, north of Boston Bar to a place that's commonly known as Jackass Mountain, and it's where the uh, Fraser Canyon Highway washed out last year. I believe the government's giving it a new name. That uh, I don't know. I, I like it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's called Falls Creek or something now instead of Jackass Mountain. Come on. But, uh, 
Uh, and of course, we also have uh, Highway 7, which goes from Hope to Agassiz to Mission. So it's, it's one of the bigger road maintenance areas. So we secured that in 1996 and have retained it. Uh, uh, now we're in year two of a 10-year renewal. So uh, we'll have it uh, you know, through uh, 2030 and the government uh, has a five-year option. So hopefully we can secure that option and and not have to uh, retender it again until the mid 2030s. Well, anecdotally, I can tell, uh, I can speak to your work because uh, I live in the Lower Mission, and you resurfaced one of the roads around my uh, area there. And uh, you'll be glad to know when we played pickleball, outdoor pickleball on that same road, the ball landed just perfectly every single time. So that that was a testament to the uh, the evenness of that plane. So good work on that. Um, um, thank you, Rick. I'd really like to, you know, our, our local crews uh, led by uh, Mike Waluga, our uh, city superintendent, and Richard Issel, our road foreman, they do great work. And uh, Gordon Drive, we resurfaced a lot of that for the city of Kelowna. We've also uh, been doing some work uh, for the city out at the airport with some resurfacing and, and some infrastructure expansion. So, yeah, um, one of our claims to fame or infamy is we'll delay you on a road somewhere around this province. I can pretty much guarantee that. So how active are you on a, on a day-to-day? I mean, you're chairman of the board, but, I mean, there's, there's day-to-day stuff. Do, do you deal with that kind of stuff or just do podcasts? <laughs> ah, I do a little more than just podcasts, but this has been a lot of fun. Maybe I'll have to become a regular or something I for you. I think so. I think so. Uh, so a couple of years ago, um, I did um, step back from most of the day-to-day stuff, other than the odd special project that um, uh, when you belong to or, or been a company around this long, um, we have had some real estate assets that were purchased uh, decades and decades ago, usually for, for gravel pits or storage locations or things like that scattered around the province. And um, we're not hoarders, but we always just held on to, uh, held on to these parcels because usually they were in remote areas, had very low annual taxes, and someday we might be back. And so one of my special projects was over in Vancouver Island. We had a uh, 80 acre parcel that was actually purchased by the company. My father found it in 1960 and it had a gravel pit on it and we extracted gravel uh, about 20 times over the decades. So part of highway projects first in the 60s and then again in the 70s. Uh, in the 80s when they, they were first thinking about an inland island Vancouver highway and then uh, a couple of major projects around Parksville in the 1990s. Since then, it's, it, the land has sat dormant, and uh, I'll switch to metric here because I know those numbers. So it's 80 acres is 32 hectares. So three hectares of the property was a gravel pit. The rest of the property, was, we had left untouched since we'd bought it in the 1960s, and it was forested. It was uh, part of the Englishman River floodplain, um, utilized by residents as a park, even though it was privately owned um, uh, by us. So uh, with a 10-year process, we were able to convince the regional district that we should be able to do some density cluster. Uh, and basically we ended up uh, subdividing three one hectare lots on the gravel pit area 
and the remainder of the land we just recently donated to the Nature Trust of BC as conservation land. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the, the donation was worth over $5 million, and um, I do want to thank the federal government. They are going to give us an eco-tax credit, so there was some incentive for us to do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, as I said to the Nature Trust, that um, it was just the right thing to do with the land. We mm-hmm. are developers, we're builders, but there's certain lands that should be conserved uh, for the overall benefit of the environment and society and, and the people. So uh, we're very proud that we uh, donated 29 hectares of land to the Nature Trust of BC, which is a great organization. They conserve a lot of land in the South Okanagan. And uh, so this land has massive timber on it. It has tremendous floodplain. It's uh, spawning ground for salmon and, and other fish in the Englishman River. And it ties into other parcels that have been uh, dedicated by other developers and the uh, estuary where it goes into, um, uh, into the ocean. Uh, uh, Chip Wilson and family just donated um, a large chunk of land and funds to create that. So it's becoming this real environmental cluster to save salmon and habitat uh, through um, along the Anderson River near Parksville. So, so that's a great decision, um, and and you know, and, and it should be applauded because I think that's a fantastic use of the land. As your fourth generation. I want to get your thoughts on transitional leadership because, I mean, there's got to be succession planning um, and you have uh, some initials behind your name. I would assume anybody who takes over needs to be somewhat of an engineer to, to run the company and know what people are talking about. But is, is that been a difficult thing? Because, I mean, obviously not many companies get past the second generation. You're fourth generation, so there's, there's clearly something that worked. What, what do you think has worked over that four generations? I think um, it, it goes back right, right to our founder. You know, so Emil Anderson founded the company. His son, Carl, uh, took it over. But even in the 1950s, they recognized that they needed key people to work with them, educated people. Neither Emil or Carl were um, civil engineers. They were you know, would be called entrepreneurs, strong business people. So um, one reason why, you know, they hired my father as because he was an engineer. Um, and the number of engineers were hired, some with family connections. My uncle uh, joined the uh, business in the around right around 1960. He was a civil engineer and uh, educated in Queens from Ontario because he grew up in in what's now Thunder Bay. Uh, others, um, a man named Will Fazer, who actually grew up in Enderby and did his engineering at Gonzaga University in Spokane. He was hired by the company. So there was this understanding with both Emil and then Carl that they needed to have professional people. And, and we would always uh, be known as a road building company that had more engineers than most of our competitors. So, um, you know, that has carried on. Uh, and even today, we do a lot of recruiting at UBCO, hiring young engineers who want to be in construction. So as far as the family transition, uh, as I was growing up, there was never any pressure to, to join the family business. Uh, 
Um, there was never any pressure um, to get a certain type of education. Uh, I was fortunate. High school came easy to me. Uh, I was good at math and science, so um, my mother wanted to be me to be a lawyer but um you know i thought well I'll get an engineering degree first and maybe maybe go to law school maybe not um so and for some reason i didn't want to be a doctor my mother had been a nurse so she was trying to push me maybe to be a doctor too but i didn't go that route so i just you know it was just a progression where okay i'll go take um first year sciences which you had to at ubc in vancouver in 1980 then the next step was take first year engineering and, um, you know, university wasn't easy, but uh, I did um, quite well. I did better in the latter years as it got more practical. Right. Yeah. As it got more hands less on. Theoretical. Yeah. Less yeah. theoretical. The, the, the high level math, I could get through it, but it, it didn't excite me. It didn't. Uh, but when it got to seeing and actually, okay, we're going to build something like this. So... But uh, when I graduated UBC in 1985, I wasn't really interested in going building highways in the middle of nowhere BC because I'd done three summers of that. And it was um, just before Expo 86 in Vancouver. So I applied for the city of Vancouver and I got my first uh, graduate post-grad job as a engineer in training at the city of Vancouver. And great time to be working for the city engineering department because the city was sprucing itself up for Expo 86. So day two, I was handed a million-dollar Gastown beautification project to run. And I was like, okay, who am I working with? And they said, oh, no, you take care of it. If you have any problems, come see us. But remember, we're all busy too. So so fresh out of university, I ran a million-dollar beautification project. Uh, the bricks and the street trees and even some of the lights are still there. So... Uh, so you did okay. So I did okay. I think so. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, then I got moved into the structures department and finished uh, contract administration and a few things on the what was the brand new Camby Bridge then. Mm -hmm. So that was very exciting. And then unfortunately, they transferred me into sewer design. And <laughs> I realized, nope, my uh, calling wasn't in sewer design. So I uh, was looking for other opportunities, decided to go back to school. I uh, went and did a master's degree in construction management. And while all that was happening, the company bought Dilworth Mountain. And um, I'd taken one real estate uh, development course at Stanford. So I thought, well, I know as much about development as anybody else. So uh, because the company bought Dilworth Mountain, I came to Kelowna. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, and, and what I like about your story is, in a family-based business, and I've often heard this, is for the, you know, for the offspring to go work somewhere else, just so that they know what other cultures exist and, and really have validation on good systems, good processes when they recognize them and within their own company. Because you, you know, it's it's a bit incestuous as far as well, this has got to be the way. But if you have any kind of other perspective, you can bring that into the fold and say, no, actually. I know of other ways. And and then you have some self-confidence, too. It's not just your name that's getting you there. It's actually what you've done in other places, too. So. Absolutely, Rick. Um, 
So we were we were fortunate um, through the uh, 1980s when I was at university and um, my brother also became a um, civil engineer, but he went into structural engineering. So out of university, he went and worked for a structural design firm in Vancouver for six years. Uh, he then came into back into the family business in the mid to late 1990s. And we got back into building bridges and structures because he had been trained as a structural engineer. Exactly. Now, I had taken the coursework, but I never worked as a structural engineer. I understand it, but I'm not a structural engineering designer. But my brother Frank took all that on, and uh, we got back into something we'd been doing in the, in the 1950s and 16s. 60s building bridges and interchanges and um, so uh, he was also very innovative he started value engineering a number of projects on the inland island uh, Vancouver Island Highway and value engineering is where you you bid the project you're selected to do it then if you can come up with a value engineering and innovation that saves the project money you uh, split half of the savings. Really? So um, he initiated, I think, four value engineering projects on the Inland Island Vancouver Highway, and all of a sudden we were back uh, into being a major structural building road contractor, and that carried on into when the BC government went to design-build type projects, and the first one in the interior was the Glen Rosa Interchange, which our company built right across from... Mm -hmm. Gorman's Mill. Yep. Uh, you know, to me, it seems like yesterday, but it's uh, 23 <laughs> years ago now. And then did some other great innovations in um, the Kicking Horse Canyon and uh, a project right near uh, in between Revelstoke and Rogers Pass called Illisilouat, which we just completed a couple years ago. So Frank brought that expertise back into the business. And uh, in around 2000, our cousin Robert Hazel who is um, my, uh, he is also a great grandson of Emil Anderson through his father's side. Uh, his father's name was also Robert Hazel. Uh, he was the fourth president of the company. So the company history, Emil Anderson, Carl Anderson, Gil Jacobs, Robert Hazel Sr., myself, and now Robert Hazel Jr. is the president of uh, and CEO of our company. Oh, wow. And in between, um, uh, my brother Frank Jacobs uh, did made, made great contributions. Unfortunately, um, he got brain cancer in 2010 and was gone in, uh, in a week. So uh, a year. Yeah, yeah, very, very tragic. Um, but um, no, he was a great innovator for us. So we, we brought these you know, diverse skills in. We all uh, ultimately had engineering degrees. Uh, I went and did a master's in construction management. So... Uh, my father once described it as he was very proud of his son, the structural engineer, and his other son was a great manager. <laughs> my dad had always wanted to be a real structural engineer, but uh, no, he was he was proud of both of us because we had you know did some some great things for the business, and and certainly, it was very important for all of us to have worked elsewhere mm -hmm. at some time in our career, or similarly look be involved in industry associations like i was in the 1990s i was 
chair of UDI for three years. Right. So I was, you know, in in my thirties when I was chair of UDI as a, a, a up and coming uh, association in the Kelowna mm-hmm. Okanagan area, which was great experience. I got to go once a month to Vancouver to meet all the real big boy developers in Vancouver. Well, and it's a great advocacy group. I mean, we've had yeah. Cassidy Devere on here, yeah. who's spent a lot of time at UDI and and that kind of thing. So. Um, Mike, I could talk to you all day. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And and what was really, I mean, lots of great points, but uh, rich history and and as well that uh, that profoundly immense, un, uh, just remarkable build that you did to really connect community uh, com- communities and and cities and uh, and thoroughfares. Like I mean, wow, that was just uh, great insight. So thanks so much for taking the time. And we'll get you back on the show. Sounds good, Rick. Enjoyed it.